Hello and welcome to Seniority. This is episode two and today we've got Mr. and Mrs. Pretty. So I'm going to go ahead and start off with just starting from the beginning. Where were you guys born and kind of in what decade? Okay. I was born in 1934, which was kind of in the middle of the Depression, uh, back in a town called Pleasantville, New Jersey, just five miles outside of Atlantic City. And Ms. Bray, would you like to? Yeah. I was born in Denver, Colorado in January of 35 and um, lived in Wyoming and Colorado and California. <coughs> so did you guys have siblings or not? And kind of what was the family structure for you guys growing up? I had a mother and father. My father um, was born in Holland and came to America on Ellis Island in 1921. And um, I went to chiropractic school, met my mother who was a Texan. And then I have had one sister who was three years older than myself. Huh. And um, she just passed away um, uh, three, three or four years ago and lived up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I came to California when I was nine years old and uh, met uh, when I graduated from high school in 1953, which was just near the end of the Korean War, and I was 18, and uh, went down to Westmont College in Santa Barbara and went there for um, one year because I really wanted to be a nurse and they didn't have a program then. But that's where I met Paul when I was at Westmont. And uh, so then I went to a nursing school in, in Santa Barbara, Cottage Hospital Nursing School. And um, then and Paul finished up at Westmont. And then we got married and lived there. And um, uh, he was, started teaching school and then I started working in a hospital in Ventura as a nurse and that's when my daughter Paula was born and then uh, we had three children. Um, Paula was the oldest and um, David was two years younger and then Stephen Freddie was um, uh, six years younger than Paula, four years younger than David. And so what did your parents do growing up? Uh, my father was, uh, he became a chiropractor oh, hey. after he came, and my mother was a school teacher. And then uh, we went, my dad wanted to, after he graduated from chiropractic school, he wanted to go out west. And so some of the Americans, he was, after he learned language and went to school, he, they told him, go out west, go to Wyoming. So we lived in Grayville, Wyoming until I was seven years old. And I had a horse. And, it's fun. So you went from Denver to Wyoming out to California. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Mr. Preddy? Well, my, from New Jersey? Yeah, my parents were both from California, but went back east to go to school. My father graduated from Biola in Los Angeles, then went to uh, the university in Chicago, and wound up going finally to uh, Wheaton College in Illinois. And uh, during that time, uh, while he was still going to school, my brother and I, and later my sister were born. Uh, but uh, 
My father became a pastor even before he finished his seminary training in Philadelphia. Uh, so he would be gone all week long going to school, come home on the train from Philadelphia to Pleasantville, uh, and immediately plunge into visitation for the church, visiting those that were sick or in the hospital, and working on a sermon. And so we had to be very, very quiet uh, during the weekends when he was home while he was studying. And then he, on Sunday night, after he preached the morning service and the evening service, then he would get back on the train and go back to Philadelphia, and we wouldn't see him again until the next Friday. But uh, we weren't able to leave New Jersey and come back to California because the war broke out and was going on, the Second World War, and uh, gasoline was rationed and travel was rationed. So uh, once the war was over, uh, then my parents were able to save up the money and we made a trip to California supposedly just a vacation trip to visit all of our grandparents and aunts and uncles that we hadn't met yet. Uh, but while we were here, the Fairmount Baptist Church in San Diego learned that my father was in Los Angeles and they sent a delegation up to ask him to come and fill the pulpit because they were without a pastor for a while. So he agreed to come down and preach two or three weeks not realizing that they were considering him as a candidate. But after the first sermon, the deacons had a meeting in the foyer before he left the building and then voted and issued him a call to come and be the pastor at, at Fairmount Baptist Church. So... And how old were you at the time? At that time, I was uh, 12 years old. Uh-huh. So he went back to New Jersey to give his resignation, to sell all of our things and give them away, uh, and then later joined us. He came out and brought the car. We had, we had come to California by railroad, but he came that, that time bringing the car. Uh, he gave away, I had a collection of books that I had started, including two or three where I had the author's signature uh, autographed in the book. They had been given to me by authors, and uh, there wasn't room in the car, so those got given away, but at least he gave them to my very best friend. Okay. <laughs> and did I ever hear, did you have siblings? Yes, I had uh, an older brother and a younger sister. Uh -huh. So you're and, the middle child. Yes, and they're both still living here in California. Cool. Um, so either of you guys can answer this. Of What were you kind of like as a child? Did you have any favorite things to do to really just interest? Well, I love to go swimming. I love to raise things in my garden. Uh, I planted watermelon seeds and other kinds of things. And an remember now this was during the Depression when Food was scarce and money was scarce. Uh, so uh, we often went out to go hunting to get some meat. And I think I shot my first rabbit when I was six years old. Wow. And my father actually pointed the rabbit out and uh, under a bush and held the gun and set me all up. 
that had me pull the trigger. But uh, we caught a lot of trout. We shot rabbits, shot ducks, shot some doves, and uh, pretty much that was our, our source of meat. We also learned to prepare frog legs to my mother's chagrin. She thought that was pretty, pretty ugly, but when she smelled them and saw us eating them, she finally decided to try some herself and quickly became an aficionado. But uh, that's what we did. We didn't do much in the way of movies and that kind of thing, partly because of the money. One of my friends uh, obviously had more than we did, and he went every week to a movie to see whatever was showing. And one time he urged me to go with him, and I asked my mother to borrow if I could get 11 cents, which was the price of a movie ticket. And she said, 11 cents just to watch movies on a, on a screen? We can't afford that. Huh. So, but I, I kept after her for several weeks. Finally, she said, okay, one time, just so you can see what a movie is like. Uh, but first, I want to know what movie you're going to see. And I didn't know, but my friend said, oh, it's Red Skeleton. And my mother didn't recognize that he was mispronouncing a name and said, no, that does it. You are not going to see a movie about a skeleton of any kind. <laughs> so I missed that one. <laughs> Eventually, I did get to see a movie, though, which was a whole lot scarier than Red, Skele Red Skeleton would have been. <laughs> did you have any favorite things growing up? Well, when we lived in, uh, in Grable, Wyoming, which was... Um, uh, up near Cody, Wyoming, but um, and I was about five, six years, six and seven years old. We had a horse, and um, and uh, it wasn't too far from from the corral where the horse was kept until we went into the little town of Greenville. And I used to go and and uh, my sister and I and we had a, a yellow a uh, pan, you know, pan to put oats in to feed the, the horse, and we would do that and um, uh, ride that pony, actually, and um, some good memories uh, there. And then um, uh, when we came out to California and visited my father's sister who lived up in Santa Monica, and her husband was the uh, groundskeeper and uh, maintenance of uh, Paul Getty, the millionaire in Malibu, of his of the grounds of uh, hmm. where the millionaire lived. Paul well, Getty. I've, I don't know if I've heard yeah, of him, but yeah, maybe I bet he was a big yeah. deal. <laughs> your grandparents would be. Right. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, that was riding that horse and, and uh, different things there in Wyoming. Can remember. Yeah. Did you guys have anything specific that you wanted to be when you grew up at that time? <laughs> I wanted to be what I called a semi-scientific farmer. <laughs> that way I allowed myself to do some of the things in the traditional way, but I also wanted to be able to uh, be a good farmer. That didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> do you have anything specific? I always wanted to be a nurse. Okay. And um, so even all the way through school and uh, when I went to West Mountain, I thought, I could keep going, I could be a teacher. My mother was a teacher, elementary teacher. My sister became a teacher. 
my Paul eventually became a teacher, and I thought I told my dad he was a chiropractor. And I said I want to do something different, <laughs> so I uh, got my RN. Okay. And, uh, uh -huh. um, did you guys ha do you guys remember anything about high school and what your graduation from high school was like? Was there anything really significant there? Well, um, during this was during the Korean War. Oh, okay. I was, uh, from fifty to fifty-three when I was in, in high school yeah. and graduated in 53. And we had, um, a, in Pittsburgh, California, up near uh, Cal San Francisco, Walnut uh -huh. Creek, Concord area and in Pittsburgh. And there was a military base there, Camp Stoneman. And a lot of the um, um, uh, military, the soldiers that were heading off to Korea were stationed there. And so we had some of the, the fellows that were stationed there came to our church. Hmm. And we got to know some of them, and this was during during high school days. And um, they came to church, and then sometimes we would, um, uh, my girlfriend and I and my sister would go down to one of the, the roads in, in the town that uh, led from the military base, Camp Stoneman, to the um, river, this, this Sacramento San, uh, San Joaquin River that came then flowed on down to San Francisco. And so these fellows that were in, on their way to Korea, went on these uh, trucks down through town to get down to the dock on the river to take the boats down to San Francisco and be on their way to Korea. So that was very interesting to yeah. um, have contact with them. And sometimes they would be going down the road and in their in their convoys and, and the trucks and they see people on the sidewalk saying goodbye to them and waving to them. and. Sometimes um, they would be throwing out coins and money because they thought they're never going to come back again and they wouldn't need it. You know, so that yeah. part was kind of sad. But um, uh, it was interesting to meet yeah. some of these. Well, you mentioned that they were going to your church. You didn't mention that that church began in your house. Uh huh. A small church began in our house, and then. Uh, so who was there a pastor or was it more like a small we, group setting started as a small group until they were in it, able to gather enough to support a pastor and call one and they called a pastor who had quite a musical background so he played the piano oh, for the okay. hymns yeah, double as a music director yeah. and a pastor yes. we had a baby grand piano in our in our wow. room it wasn't a big house but uh that kind of brought so we could sing songs and hymns, you know. And uh, the little kids that belonged to some of the couples um, would sit on the stairs that go up to the bedrooms upstairs. They would sit on those stairs right there, you know, and, and uh, uh, listen to, have little stories and stuff. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so then I know you guys mentioned about your parents going to college, then you guys eventually ended up going to college. I bet especially when your parents were going to college, even more so than when you guys did, that that was probably somewhat rare still. Was there any still question of, okay, would you go to college? Would you go do something else? No, it was pretty common. Okay, so by the time... It, was, yeah. it uh -huh. was expected in my family. I, I wasn't sure I wanted to go, <laughs> but uh, they were sure they wanted me to go. Yeah. And I finally did. I, in high school, um, I had thought at that point, trying to think ahead to adulthood, that uh, maybe I should be a pastor like my father. And... Partly because of that, when it came time to declare a major in high school, I chose Latin. Huh. So I studied Latin for three years, thinking it would help me with Greek. Um, 
my teacher, incidentally, was the mother of Art Linkletter. Uh, I don't think I know what that is, sorry. I'm not surprised. He was a popular television character, personality. Oh, okay. He wrote the book, too, Kids Say the Darndest Things. At any rate, that was just an interesting thing. Actually, when I went to college then and studied Greek, I found sometimes the Latin prepared me but in some cases, it was too similar, and I would confuse them. So often on a test, I would I had to be very, very careful because I would write a Greek word with a Latin ending, <laughs> or something like that. And uh, so then you both started at Westmont. Mr. Prey, you ended up finishing at Westmont, and then you switched yeah. to Santa Barbara. It was kind of yeah. nursing school. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was a year ahead. She came when I was a sophomore, and. It, and did you guys know each other when you guys were at college, or was that when you guys started oh, yeah. dating? Well, it's a small school. Small okay. school. So, well, he, yeah. was a, he was one year ahead of me, but when I came, and then, um, I, anyway, we met there and dated. Uh-huh. And then we got married in Santa Barbara in Montecito uh-huh. Presbyterian Church. Yeah, but I, during college, I decided that uh, I was not really called to the pastorate, and so I had to think of something <laughs> and decided that the fastest way to be able to put bread on the table was to get a teaching credential. There you go. So that's what I did. And so this is going back a little bit, but do you guys remember your first job and what was that? Oh my. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, when I was nine, and as you already know, money was very, very scarce. Yeah. Uh, and was that still during the Great Depression? When you no, were nine, or is no, that? No, we were well into the war, uh-huh. and so the depression was pretty much over. But yeah, we really twenty nine, wasn't the depression? It began in nineteen twenty nine, yes. But um, the war, the depression was over, but things were still tough, and, yeah. and the war was on. And uh, any rate, my father helped me, and I ordered Christmas cards with Bible verses on them. And I went around selling Christmas cards huh. uh, to earn a little bit of money. <laughs> I had to give it up, though. Parts of New Jersey, Jersey City especially, were pretty rough. And the second time I was mugged and robbed of the money that I had from the cards, I gave up selling Christmas cards. Oh, no. But then uh, I got a job cleaning out stores, uh, including the Salvation Army store that uh, they paid me to come in and sweep it and dust the shelves and uh, after the store was closed. And I did that. When I was 12, I sold newspapers. Uh, by that time, when we were 12, we came to California and I sold newspapers on the corner of Fairmount Avenue and University Avenue. Huh. And uh, as the buses, the buses were going, trolleys in those days, when the trolleys would come by, taking people home from work, I would sell through the windows of the trolley. Wow. I remember when the price was raised, and I was so annoyed at that because uh, it was easy when it was a nickel a copy, and uh, they raised it to seven cents. That was such, oh. a, such a bother with all these pennies and making changes. One man hated the black pennies that were printed during the war when they ran out of copper because of all the war needs. Yeah. 
And so whenever he got one of those, he would save it up. And when I would come by his porch to sell him a paper, he would give me a handful of pennies that he had collected. He didn't want them anymore. <laughs> uh, supplied your change for yeah, you. Yeah, after, after the, the traffic slowed down a little bit and the rush hour was over, then I would walk a mile in each direction selling in all the stores and bars, wherever there were people gathered, and I would go and sell, sell papers there. Okay, so then you started as a nurse and then kind of went through that uh -huh. right after college? My first job was in high school, and I uh -huh. worked uh, um, in, uh, um, I was a soda jerk, you know, <laughs> selling so, and so forth. That was during, during the uh, war, uh, Korean War. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did that. But then after I graduated uh, in nursing, uh, we lived for a little while in Ventura. Uh -huh. And um, I worked in the hospital there. And that was when our daughter Paula was right after she was born. Uh -huh. So she was still a baby. And I worked part-time at the hospital and worked weekends. And then Paula would take care of her. And then I would be off all week. And then he'd go teach school and uh, like that. So I worked. Yeah. When I was in high school, uh, I did a lot of gardening type work, but I also uh, got a job at the San Diego Zoo, and I was I ran one of those food booths okay. where they sell hot dogs and cokes and ice cream and that kind of thing. I loved that. I really enjoyed that. And so then, did you guys get married while you were still in college, or when did? It was after graduation. I had one year left of nursing school. Oh, okay. And he had, he was already graduated and worked, but um, we lived in a little apartment uh, a block or so from the hospital. It was a converted one-car garage. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so um, I would still, the director of the nursing school said I, you know, some of us could get married in the last year. It wasn't really popular then. Yeah. You know, but if I could keep up with everything. So um, I did, I finished that last uh, year and worked in, in Cottage Hospital and all. And then um, after I finished, we moved to uh, Ventura. And um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get a teaching job when we were first married because we had to stay in Santa Barbara and there were very few teaching jobs available because Westmont College was pumping out lots of teachers and so was uh, University of California uh, at Santa Barbara. So there, there was lots of competition and I wasn't able to get a teaching job. So I worked for a while for a geological survey company that did oil exploration off the coast. And my job was to take the tracings. They would set off explosions in the ocean and record it on uh, an array of microphones. And then by the, the time lapse between the microscope, uh, microphones, we could tell on the graph that was printed uh, what the shape of the ground was like yeah. and whether it was likely to produce oil. Huh. So my job was to go through those graphs and pick out patterns and, and mark them, that kind of thing. But that group then finished their work in Santa Barbara and moved to Japan. And I thought that would really be exciting. I'd love to go to Japan but I, I wanted to get married worse. So I had to quit that and I went to work in a grocery store and I did that until after we were married. Then finally, a few months after we were married, a uh, school in a neighboring town 30 miles away found out that I was not teaching 
and they sent somebody up to offer me a job, and I took it. So did you guys move closer? Yes, yes. Okay. then we, we moved down to uh, Ojai, uh -huh. Ventura. Ojai for a while, and then Ventura. And that's where we lived when we decided to go, and Stephen, when Stephen was three years old, and um, we had the missionary come and talk to us from Congo, and Democratic. Democratic, it used to be the Belgian Congo, but it was the Democratic, <laughs> Democratic Republic of Congo. And, um, and that was just about um, 1965 or so. Yeah. And um, we felt the need uh, then to, um, to go in and fill in what was needed on, on this mission field. They needed a school that had already been started in the capital city of Kinshasa and the school for missionary children. And that's where our love of wanting to serve the Lord and, and uh, do something. Uh, and we decided we could do that. Um, Paul felt like um, uh, he could uh, would want to do that, and that's, you can tell about that. Well, but, um, and then I was a nurse, and, and um, seemed like it was not too far after the uh, independence of Congo that they needed, and the mission uh, uh, that we went to needed a teacher for missionary children. Oh, to rewind just real quick because you mentioned at this point that Steve was three. So you yeah. guys had three kids total. What was kind of the age separation between those three? Uh, in, um, let's see, in 1966, Stephen was three. David was in second grade and Paula was um, going grade. to be into the fourth grade the uh, next year. So when Paula, David, Stephen. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, we'd been interested in, in missions in general for a long time. Uh, ever since I was a very little child and we used to collect coins in a little piggy bank, plastic bank, to give to the lepers, you know, and it had printed right on the side for so many dollars you can buy a blanket or you can buy medicine. And uh, I often would, would put what little money I had into that to give. And with my father being a pastor, we often would have missionary speakers at our church, and he would always have them come and eat the Sunday meal with us. So I got to know lots of missionaries and was very interested in, in missions. And I, I felt as a teacher, I was doing what lots of people could do, and some of them even better than I could do it, and I wanted to do something with a more lasting value that would affect more people for longer. And that's why we pursued missions. I, I first approached the Wycliffe Bible Translators, uh, and uh, they were going to send me to Peru, to Urena Cocha. Uh, that did not work out. And so I approached later. We heard this uh, presentation from Mrs. Brown, missionary from Congo, and they were making a big plea for teachers and uh, nurses. And I thought, well, shoot, I'm a teacher, Nancy's a nurse. And at that time I had six years experience in the US Army Reserves as a medical technician and surgical technician. Uh, and, he, and I also worked in hematology. So I thought, what could be better? Yeah. <laughs> we have all these things. So we applied to the American Baptists and they, they said, yeah, uh, after interviewing us, said, we're very interested in you, but we spell Japan C-O-N-G-O. <laughs> so, so 
I, I didn't want to argue with that, so even though I thought Japan would be exciting, I said, okay, to Congo, and that's where we went. But it was usually missionaries were sent to Europe for a year to study French and become fluent in it and to learn a little bit about tropical medicine. But they needed us immediately. <laughs> uh, the, I had already had one year experience as a principal by that time. A uh, principal in like Santa Barbara Ventura area? Yes. Uh -huh. Public school. Uh -huh. Public school, yeah. Uh, Elementary. At any rate, uh, we were sent directly there and I can't live in another country and not speak a language but I did not choose to speak French first. I decided that I would begin by learning Lingala because the president spoke it, the army spoke it, the police spoke it and we had two or three hundred workmen on our uh, to, to build the, the school because we were going to build the school at uh, primary school grammar school, junior high, and senior high. Wow. Uh, and I wanted to be able to talk a language to the people uh, that they would be at home with. So I chose Lingala. So then who uh, was mostly the people that were speaking French at this time? French was the official language. Okay. But just everyone else used Lingala? Uh, More of the national people. It was, okay. it was yeah, the, the, the tribes people, the village people. Uh, they spoke 175 different languages, oh. but the one most common in that area was Lingala, which basically a trade language. So I decided to say that, and I found a missionary from Great Britain who had spent most of her life a thousand miles north in one of the cities called Gimana, and she was willing to set up a class and teach new missionaries how to speak Lingala. So I studied from her. Uh, I've had, it's kind of funny though, because then when I would meet uh, a Congolese somewhere and begin speaking to them in Lingala, they often would, I could see the smile starting on the corner of the mouth. First of all, white people did not speak Lingala. <laughs> and so just the fact that a white person was speaking to them in, a, in this language, uh, was amusing to them, but they also recognized that I was speaking with an accent from Gemina <laughs> because I oh, learned from I was a where teacher. Plus, she spoke with an English accent, so even Lingala, that would spill over. So I speak Lingala with a American. British Gemina accent. With your American accent on top of that. That's exactly right. <laughs> so people would sometimes smile and say, how long has it been since you were in Gemina? <laughs> and I had never been within a thousand miles of it. Yeah. Well, it's really kind of funny because there are a lot of sociological implications to the language that you speak. But I found that when I talked to a villager or one of our workers, they really appreciated the fact that I would speak Lingala with them, and they were much more at home with it than they would have been with the official French. But when I would speak to somebody who had worked hard and risen up to a position where now he had an office and a desk and probably wore a white shirt and maybe a tie, uh, he would be angry hmm. when I speak Lingala because he would, he would take that as an implication that he wasn't smart enough to be able to speak French or sophisticated enough. So he would always want to answer me in French 
at that level. When I got to somebody very highly placed who was very secure in his position, such as I did talk to a Supreme Court justice one time. A Supreme Court justice in Congo? Yes. Wow, I didn't realize they had a Supreme Court even. Yeah. Um, at any rate, that, that was kind of funny because he was a little bit amused by it, but uh, politicians from the United States often go around the world on yeah. trips and they always have to have an excuse to use tax money to do that. Yeah. So the excuse was always, we're investigating the educational opportunities for American dependents in, in Africa. So when they send embassy people or military people, uh, that they wanted to know what our school was offering. But every year that got investigated. <laughs> One year, the person who came was Thurgood Marshall, who was the Supreme Court Justice on our Supreme Court. Yeah. And as director of the school, I was invited to the reception, and I went. Huh. But while I was there, one of the Congolese court justices approached me and spoke to me in French. I apologized in Lingala and said, please forgive me, but I don't speak French yet in Lingala. And he shocked me by switching to English. Well, I had never met a Congolese that spoke English, huh. but he spoke perfect English, so I know he must have studied here. I've since met people at Stanford and others from Congo that are studying there. At any rate, he looked at me and said, how long have you lived here? And I said, three months. And you don't speak French? That's dreadful, sir. Simply dreadful. You must take a French mistress, and in three more months, you'll speak it fluently. And I told him, well, that sounds like an exciting idea, but you know, on my missionary expense account sheet, there is no column for mistresses. <laughs> I don't think this would work. <laughs> so, that was an unexpected re uh, reaction, and it's the kind of advice you would certainly not expect from a judge. A highly placed judge, yeah. but it was it reflected a common practice in Congo of multiple wives for yeah. multiple purposes. I uh, still had. Um, I also let me just one more before we leave that subject. People's reaction to different languages. We got to the place where we were building the high school, and it was almost ready for occupancy, although it still was not finished but I needed to buy some paint. And so I drove into the capital city and stood on the entryway to a Belgian-owned store that specialized in paints and was trying to compose a sentence, sentences in French uh, because I could see the Belgian proprietor and, and I was sure he would speak French. So I was trying to compose the, to describe the color I wanted, the the type of paint I wanted, the volume of paint I wanted, all these different things. And I was struggling to come up with these sentences when I noticed the proprietor call to one of his Congolese clerks in Lingala. <laughs> oh, wow, this is easy. So I just walked into the store, approached him immediately and began talking to him in Lingala. And he was angry huh. and would not speak to me in Lingala would not answer me, but if he, he answered me, but in French. And Did you tell him that you didn't speak French? Or? I, I, I had enough that I could get that much across yeah. to him. I, I, 
fr my French is very bad. We'll have a hard time, but it's going to take a long time if I have to use French. Yeah. So he called over his Congolese clerk. I would speak in Lingala. He would answer me directly in French and have the clerk translate into Lingala for me. <laughs> but he would not speak to me, and he actually said very angrily, I will not speak a black language to a white man. <laughs> so there was a great deal of prejudice on the part of the Belgians uh, to the subservient uh, Congolese. So he would speak to him in Lingala, but he wasn't going to speak to me in Lingala. It was, uh, it was insulting to him somehow. So did you guys end up learning French at some point? Uh, minimally, but yes. I wound up taking yeah. a, a, a semester or two at uh, Berkeley University when we were home on furlough. But I never did really. I always found myself going back to Lingala. Mm -hmm. Well, and I feel like those African languages like Lingala would be hard to learn. So how long did it take you guys to really learn it? Or was it I easier because you were immersed? I'm sorry? Was it easier to learn the language because you were immersed Part, in it? Parts of it were easier than the uh, French would have been. Uh, the, the grammar is much simpler and so forth. Um, though sometimes it, it was very imprecise. I, I used to explain to people, I felt a little bit like I was trying to do an oil painting, but my brush was a broom. That's <laughs> 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 crude language. In fact, uh -huh. Just one example of that is that at one point I learned that there was no word for love, God's love, agape love, giving yeah. love, self-giving love, where the other person becomes more important to you than you are. Yeah. Uh, how can you talk about that if there's no word? The only word for love is kolinga. That's the infinitive of it, kolinga. But that also means desire. So to say, I love you, you have to know by context whether I mean I want you, I need you, I desire you, or I love you. It's all the same word. Huh. And that drove me crazy. <laughs> How can I tell these people about the love of God when they don't know if I'm saying the desire of God or what, what it is? But something happened, this is going to take a little while. <laughs> One day, we sent our chauffeur, that is our truck driver, with a dump truck down to the river to get a load of sand because we needed it for some cement we were going to pour. We needed it uh, quickly. And the river was only uh, two or three miles down the road. So I didn't think it would take him very long. But he was gone for hours and hours. And uh, I was really getting angry. But finally he came back and when he did, he was terribly beaten. Uh, one eye was swollen out of its socket. The uh, scapula, his shoulder blade was showing through the flesh. His, he had been horribly beaten. Uh, I thought he had been in a, tr in a wreck or something. Yeah. But no, he told me then what happened. A great effort. As he went through a small village on the way to the river, he saw a lot of kids that he knew, and they all ran out on the road and waved at him and said, Dookie, Dookie, take us to the river. It's against the rules, and he wasn't supposed to do it, but 
he thought, well, it's just a few more hundred yards. What the heck, we'll give the kids a, a lift. And he let them climb in the back of the truck. The Congo River. The Congo River, uh -huh. yeah, it's a huge river. Uh, it's like Mississippi size? Pardon? The size of the Mississippi? Bigger. Uh, oh, bigger than the Mississippi River? 10% of the world's fresh water goes down the Congo River. Wow. You've heard of the Amazon River? Yeah. Amazon. Well, that's bigger. The, the Amazon is bigger. Okay, so it's between Mississippi and Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Amazon is bigger, but this is huge. Uh, river, and uh, there's 100 miles of rapids from Kinshasa down to Matadi, but seagoing ships can come up the river up to the rapids and then that's as far as they can go so at any rate three more stories but any rate he said he he picked the boys up let them ride in his his uh, truck but then when they got down to the river where he wanted to get the sand it was swarming with soldiers and policemen uh, with arms and they were very agitated and they kept trying to wave him off and he thought well They just don't understand. I won't I won't interfere with them And he stepped down out of the truck and when he did he saw why they were agitated First of all, they had been using ganji a drug second of all they had a number of prisoners that they had interrogated too Enthusiastically and they were disposing of the bodies in the river so they had a stack of bodies with their hands and their feet tied, and they were getting rid of them in the river. When they saw that he saw why they were upset, they all pointed their guns at him and said, everybody out of the truck, show us your papers, because adults are not supposed to go anywhere in Congo without having their papers with them. He had his because he was working. So he showed it to them, but the boys didn't have any papers. Were the boys that were in the back some of them were adults? Or oh, no, were, all the children yeah, need to have? They, they were like 10 to, to 12 years old. Okay, so children need to carry papers at this time too? Well, they just don't go out of the village without their with parents their parents. Oh. Have their papers with them. Yeah. Got it. So yeah. it's, uh, it's almost like a passport for us. At any rate, they then said, okay, your papers are in order. You get back in the truck and get out of here, but the kids have to stay here and be punished. Uh, for not uh, having the papers. And Dookie said he turned and took a step towards the truck and his conscience just wouldn't let him. So he turned back and said, I can't, I can't go uh, and leave these kids here. I'm responsible because I let them in the truck and I know these kids, I know their parents. In fact, that one is the son of my pastor and I can't leave him here. And the soldiers said, Either you leave them and get out of here now, uh, or we'll let them go and you must take their punishment for them. And he agreed. He said, all right, if you will wait until they are out of sight and over the hill so they can't hear, I will take their punishment. Wow. Well, there in the presence of the dead bodies, he could be the next. Yeah. So... But he said that, and they agreed, and they let the kids leave, and then they took their rifles and their their pistols, and just everybody just beat the living tar out of him, but they didn't kill him, and that's why it took a long time before he recovered enough that he was able to get into the truck, and and uh, come back to the school. But as I was hearing this story, I was thinking. 
I couldn't understand whether if a person doesn't have a word in their language, can they have the concept? Yeah. If he doesn't have a word for love that really means love, can he really understand it? I said, now I don't have to wonder. <laughs> he has given me a lesson yeah. in what agape love is all about. Yeah. You know. Wow. So it really changed my attitude uh, towards a lot of things. At any rate, that was Dookie. Wow. That's really... Uh, who wound up naming a son after me. <laughs> That's been a, uh, a special story to him because of the meaning of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he named. He came to me one day and said he had a, a new baby son, and they were going to name him after me. And I said, "Well, Dookie, that's a real compliment. I'm very honored. Paul is a good Bible name, but don't call him Paul Preddy." <laughs> and he looked stars. Said, "Why not?" And I said, "Well, Preddy is too hard to say. See, they don't have an R in their language." So do you want Petty? Paletti. Palet. Oh, so you put an L in there instead. Yeah. So he said, oh, no, we can say Paletti. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, school that we were at, um, uh, it was uh, about 500 students from kindergarten through high school. Yeah, from 19 different and countries. They were, wow. Yeah, missionaries that their parents were in the bush, uh, and they, uh, the kids were ready to go to school. Instead of going back to the United States or other countries, to their families, they could stay in, in Congo and live in a hostel in the capital city where we were in the school and then see their parents on Easter vacation, summers, and they'd go back. So it's almost more like a boarding school yeah. type situation. Uh, it was, although the, the boarding was not done by the school. Uh -huh. It was done by the various mission yeah. boards. Like the, the Methodists had a hostel uh -huh. for yeah, their the kids. The Methodists and Presbyterians Baptist. went together and yeah. did one. The Baptists did one. The Mennonites did so one. So we were with the Baptists uh, in the school, but uh, we didn't have anything with the, in the hostel. But anyway, um, that was to give you an idea of the size of the school and, and what age So you only had missionary and kids? No, not, no, no. Oh, no. you had some local you, kids too? Oh, yeah. Uh, the missionary um, kids were... Speaking. The missionary kids were one-third of the student population. We also had uh, children of the various ambassadors who preferred to have an American education instead of... So that would be outside ambassadors, not Congo ambassadors, yeah. to be clear. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, uh -huh. the, the Congo doesn't send itself Well, I didn't know if it was like ambassadors at yeah, home or anything. Ambassadors from China, France, Germany. Yugoslavia. Wow. Yugoslavia. So then what Sarah. language did you guys teach in? English. Okay. Every child from kindergarten forward had to learn English and French. So we had French lessons even for kindergartners. And we used, uh, not all the other we used tape recordings um, uh, for them to listen to. We had sets of earphones so a whole table full of kids could be listening at the same time and practicing their French. But the, the curriculum and, and everything uh, in school is English. Uh -huh. And they had to know, know English before they could come. And the different um, ambassadors' places, they would pay tuition to the school. And then the Mer uh, American um, uh, embassy, uh, embassy kids came there. And, um, and so the military it, it kids. Oh, I didn't think about uh -huh. that. Yeah, yeah. the ad and American attache kids. So then, I'm assuming you taught, did you have any role in the school operation? 
Well, I was kind of school nurse. Okay. Of course, the, the American Embassy kids already had their, their medical things taken care of by the embassy. But um, a lot of the missionary kids and um, some, all the others. Yeah. I was school nurse, sort of, so, and I worked in the office for a while as Paul's secretary, so to speak. And then uh, if any kids got sick at school or something, then I would take care of them in, in another room, you know, and yeah. have them down. And a lot of the missionaries um, had to have um, updated um, immunizations when they ran out. So um, I did that as many of the um, missionary kids uh -huh. that didn't have the embassy. I would uh, give um, immunizations and take, but I didn't work with the nationals, the African uh -huh. nationals. You know, so and I worked through the American Embassy doctor. And uh -huh. another story about uh, President Mobutu's um, doctor, who was an American doctor, uh -huh. uh, and he had kids at school. And he Doctor Close, <laughs> his daughter is uh, um, Glenn Close, Close, the actress. The actress. Oh, I, I don't know. Her. I don't know her, but that's cool. So anyway, that's what I did. But so then, did she go to your school? No, no, okay. but, but her brother did. Okay. That's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, then I, I helped with Paul with ordering books and things in the office, or you know. But when we were there, um, Stephen started kindergarten. That's what I was going to ask you if you had kids yeah, that went to that school. Yeah, about his question. <laughs> when, before he even started kindergarten, when we'd been there about a year, he came to me one time and said, "Daddy." How long do we have to stay here before we turn black like everybody else? Have <laughs> <laughs> you been in a class of white kids, other uh, uh, kids, um, maybe about twenty in the class or so? But um, and he was uh, in kindergarten, and, and they were doing something, and his teacher wanted them to do something. Anyway, he didn't want to do it, <laughs> so he took off from the room and went down the hall up to. Paul's office, the principal's office, you know, and where yeah. I was, and he thought, well, my dad is the principal and I can do anything I want. So he took off, and pretty soon here comes his teacher down to pick him up and get him, you know, carry him back to the class. So um, That's Paul the first to... and only kid I ever spanked <laughs> <laughs> at, at that school. Yeah. And his office there, then, then went back to kind of, he never did that again. <laughs> Set him straight. Like a little story about Stephen. <laughs> so, uh, so were you principal for the whole time, or did you teach for part of it, or kind of? I went as a teacher. Okay. Then they declared me vice principal the first <laughs> year while I was there. Then the fellow who had actually started the school left to come back to the United States. And at that point, problem. I became principal of the whole school, and the next uh, next fall. The board actually appointed me as, as superintendent. Wow. The whole school, high school. So that's through covering K through 12 at that point. Uh -huh. Preschool through 12. Wow. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> and then you were there for uh, six years. Uh, okay, so then that pulls Stephen up till sixth grade, and then the other ones were older Paula, up in. Yeah, Paula was in high school. She started 10th okay. uh, grade when we came back. Okay. And that's yeah. uh, and uh, David was in junior high, and Stephen went up to school up here at sixth, fourth, fourth grade. Oh. So the curriculum was all um, American in English with American oh, curriculum, yeah. and our teachers were uh, all um, coming for uh, like a two-year 
term of teaching, like the Mennonite brothers, they used to have to spend two years missionary work. Well, that was in lieu of military service because they were conscientious objectors. Huh. And they, they would accept two years of work in Africa they were in, in lieu of being drafted. But yeah. we also had missionaries from uh, a lot of different countries that were working. Plus, we hired local people sometimes. I hired some Belgian teachers that were difficult to work with. <laughs> but uh, we hired one fellow from the American Embassy who had been a professor of French literature at the University in Louisiana. Huh. And at the end of the first semester, he came to me amazed and said, I've taught for years um, in the university, but this is the first year I have ever been able to teach all semester long without once resorting to English <laughs> to explain something. Yeah. But the kids were so good at, at French, French that they studied just like French kids. Huh. In so fact, when we were sent, we were told our objective was to create a curriculum and a school that would prepare students to go to the university in either Europe or the United States. And in our second year there, our graduating class had over 90% that were accepted into universities. Wow. In, in either place. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so then you guys stayed in Congo for six years, and then Actually it was three. Oh. And we went back for what? We went to Berkeley for a furlough, okay. a missionary furlough for one year. So it was six then years we went back furlough. for two more years. So the whole total thing was six years. Okay. We and so then, kind of, what caused you guys to give that up and come back? That is a really hard question. And we <laughs> wrestled with this for a year. The date was coming when we had to decide one way or the other. And uh, boy, one day we would say we're going home, the other day we'd say no, we're not. But I was, I really felt like there were some gaps in my knowledge. And I, I, I was a new principal and inexperienced, and I was not satisfied with my own performance, to be frank with you. And I thought, well, the school now is built, we have our physical facilities, we have a functioning faculty. Uh, kids are being accepted into universities. Uh, I'm, I wasn't sure that I was really the best guy there for that job. I was. I kept comparing myself to my predecessor, who was jack of all trades. Yeah. And I finally decided, if the Lord doesn't give us clear guidance, uh, I've got a 50-50% chance of being in the right place or the wrong place. <laughs> If I uh, am wrong and I go home, that's too bad, and they, they might miss me somewhat. But if I'm here and I shouldn't have be, I should be there, I might make it difficult for everybody. So I thought, Lord, this is the way it looks to us. Stop us if you don't want us to go. Uh, we'd be happy to be stopped, but otherwise we're going to go this direction. And he never, never presented any stop. Uh, he didn't problem. speak to us like Moses heard. You know, <laughs> <laughs> burning bush. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was asked that question by one of my students, who is now a missionary in the Philippines. Wow. Uh, you know her, I think. Uh, I taught her in the, in the sixth grade or fifth grade. I forget which. Huh. I was That's teaching then. 
that uh, she asked me, well, why, why did you leave? And I just basically told her, I didn't think I was doing the best job that could be done, so I fired myself. <laughs> you were doing a great job, but you were wondering, as the kids, Paula was getting, you know, they're all getting kind of older. Should yeah. we, is it time we should go back for the family's sake or stay? Or I'm sure a lot of missionaries face that same thing. Yeah, and so but, within that, sorry, go ahead, finish what but, you're saying. But, uh, and yet Paul knew that there was some good people that could take over his job there that had been coming along. And um, just a lot, lot of little things. It's, it's hard to explain really yeah. feelings sometimes. And it's just sometimes it's like my mom says, a part of your job is to work yourself out of the job yeah. and yeah. to raise up yeah. people to take it. Take yeah. place. Well, it's, the school has survived and still in operation. Oh, really? Yeah. All these Did you guys ever years. go back and visit? No, we've been to a number of reunions, okay. and for several years, uh, once once the internet became popular, I, I was getting emails from uh, students and former students uh, from and, there. And some of the colleagues that, that we had worked with had, had uh, come back, but there were a few years, now that was in seven, 1972 that we came back. And since then, there have been times when the missionaries in Congo had had to be evacuated because of the fighting and the war in the country, mm -hmm. and it wasn't safe for them for uh, them to f yeah. fly out. So they had to come back. Yeah, in fact, while we were there, there was a big evacuation. I went. Uh, there, there was a rebellion in eastern Congo that was spilling over with violence, coming yeah, closer and closer to the capital. A couple of years after. And there, there was so much tension that the ambassador would meet with Americans once a week and bring them up to date on what was going on and all of that. And when we got into August, I asked the ambassador, I said, look, uh, soon we've got to let people know if there's any chance that we're going to close the school down and there's going to be an evacuation, we need to tell them now, not wait a few yeah. weeks until they're here. And he said, oh, no, no, don't close it down. Don't even talk about closing it down. Uh, it's a calming influence in the city to have you on the streets. Just go about your life as normal don't do anything else, and don't close the school. And that night, he ordered all of the dependents out of the country. Hmm. So all the ambassadors, uh, the, the diplomats, action. personnel, their secretaries, the military, sent them all out of the country <laughs> after telling us, no, you stay here and act normal. <laughs> well, it, it was a hairy time. In fact, we packed our suitcases and had them stacked at the front door in the order of priority. So if there was <laughs> time to grab one, it was the first one. And there, some of the Congolese that we didn't even know uh, expressed concern for us and would come by and bring us gifts, gifts of bananas or of peanuts, uh, and just express their concern and sorrow. And one man on his own made daily trips from our house to the river and back to let us know that the path is all clear if you need to get to the river to get away. Oh. So on his own, he did that. Yeah, so there were, there were some hairy times. Yeah. yeah. And so then within that six year period of that you were there, you started out with building it. How long did it take to build the school and at what point was it just switch from building to actually operating? Actually, the, the, the school that we went to was on the American Baptist Mission well, uh, property. Until we built a school, and, we were using oh, their so you, office spaces. So it was concurrent yeah, of yes, starting of, the school of and building at the right. same time. So yeah. We were building it about uh, uh -huh. 
about two or three miles away on top of the hill, the same hill where the president's palace was. <laughs> uh, in fact, there's some stories to that. Well. So, <laughs> at any rate, we, we started by building the high school, and it's not like building a school here. Here, you have to have an architect's plans all drawn up. You have to have them approved locally. Then you send them to Sacramento, get them approved there. It, it takes, it can be two years before you lay the first brick. Yeah. In Congo, we don't have any of that. We had the first school from the time we cleared forest down, chopped down trees, to the time kids were meeting in their desk was 60 working days. Wow. Now the school wasn't finished. We'd come back at night and do some painting or yeah. put in ceilings or put in windows. But there were class, classes in what had been a jungle 60 days later. Wow. That had already been started when we got there, but... Uh, yeah. Well, we had to... We had to... We had to, that, to was, do um, a little fooling around with... The, we didn't follow the rules. <laughs> um, the president was planning to build a big village around his mansion because he was going to have a convention of the heads of state in all of southern Africa, uh, 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 south, south of the Sudan, all of Africa south of the Sudan. Oh, so that's south of Sudan. He was having the ambassadors and the, oh, and the okay. presidents from all those countries to a conference yeah. and wanted to build servants' quarters. At any rate, he passed a rule because there was only two cement factories in the whole country. Wow. And he passed a rule, no one can buy cement until my project is finished. Well, we had teachers coming. We had to have buildings. We had to have apartments for them to live in. All of this kind of thing. So the guy, this was in our first year there. My predecessor was a lot more bold about this kind of thing than I was. He went down to the railroad station and paid the, the uh, railroad master. And then he hired some guys that didn't have a job to go and spy on the railroad and come back and tell us every day what was on each car on every railroad train. And they would come back and say, well, let's see, cars number two and three are loaded with dried fish, and four and five have peanuts, and six and seven have this. But every once in a while, they'd say, there's a car or two with cement in it. We would then, we, whatever they reported, we would pay them. And then when they said it was cement, then we would go down and pay the station master and pay the cement company, and then we would get the cement rush it up to the school and bury it in the ground so it didn't, you couldn't see it. <laughs> uh, and then by dawn the next day, you wouldn't know there was any cement around, but we, but the buildings just kept rising <laughs> on the same hill where the president was living. A lot of these guys that worked on the property did all that. They were local uh, fellows, you know, that they weren't associated with churches and different stuff. They just but, workers. Yeah, in the mornings, I would go out and address the, the work crew, not every day, but most days, and talk to them about what the goals were for that day, and what we're gonna do, and, and uh, talk to them. Uh, I would speak in Lingala, and a guy would stand next to me and translate that into French. A guy would stand on the other side of him and translate it into Kikongo. And oh, is then, that another local language? Yes, uh -huh. and then Chiluba, and Kihungana, uh, 
uh, have I left any out? I don't remember. Doesn't matter. But there's, a, there's a whole string of, it was kind of funny because once in a while I would tell a joke in Lingala, which is hard to do because <laughs> uh, sometimes it depends on a pun or something yeah. that just doesn't work in another language. But at any rate, I'd, I would tell a joke and these guys and these guys would all laugh. Then they would tell it in French, and those guys would laugh. <laughs> and they would tell it into Kihugana, and they would laugh. And some guys laughed three times. You, know. <laughs> you can just see the spread throughout the crowd. Yeah, yeah, because they would tend to group together anyway. The, yeah. They would uh, hang with the that guys their sense. own language or, and their own specialty. We had carpenters, we had um, drivers, we had cement workers, masons, um, and they would all kind of group together. So you just build one building at a time and then go, or would you be consecutively building we, the preschool yeah, and the middle school? Help in another direction. We started. Okay. We started with the high school, and the junior high, uh -huh. and and the elementary school we left to last. But I was that just based on demand of where the kids needed? No, because they were either they were all meeting at the mission station. Uh, using office spaces and things and um, then as we built the, the high school those kids would move from that campus up to the new high, new campus and we keep building we had to build houses too for the teachers oh, okay. and apartments and that was important uh, then when we got the high school done and the high school teachers all up there then we started the elementary school and, and a lot of this was, was started already when we got there by this other missionary. Uh -huh. and he had, Nancy? He went back. What was built of the high school before we started? The office area. No. No. Well, everything, 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 everything was at the primary school at, okay. at the mission station. Yeah, I guess that's right. Well, if nothing else, at least the wheels were turning by the time you yeah. guys got there. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, the embassy had leased that land for 99 years and uh, gave it to us to use. At one time, <laughs> when the president was beginning his project, I, men came to me, knocked on my, well, they don't knock on doors in Congo. That's considered rude. They'll oh, stand really? outside. Oh, yeah, that's demanding. So huh. if I wanted to go to get permission from a village, from a chief, a land chief, to cut down trees, I would never knock on his door. I would go and stand in his yard and wait. And if I waited a half an hour or so, then it was acceptable to clear your throat or cough to make sure he knew you were there. But that was it. And also, you had to take a gift, uh, some kind of a gift to him to show respect. At any rate, a lot of little rules like that. But at any rate, guys came to my house and and we're all excited oh there's guys down there in the school grounds and they're they're cutting a path right through the forest and they say they're going to build things and so i rushed down there and uh sure enough there was a belgian surveyor with a crew uh cutting a path right through the forest where we were going to build our elementary school and I approached him and said, you can't come in here. This, this land is leased by the American Embassy. And he said, well, tell that to the president, President Mobutu, because he has ordered us to clear this area and build a village for his visitors for the coming conference. <laughs> oh, man. So I ran back up to the house to 
call the embassy, but the phones weren't working right at that time, which was on again, off again all yeah. the time. So I jumped in my car, drove all the way into the capital city, and went to the ambassador, and I said, hey, I thought you guys had a 99-year lease on that property, and here's guys, gonna, they're already surveying it and, and going to build property for Mobutu. Because there's really a sense of urgency there since you oh, can build things so fast. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was really alarmed. He said, oh, calm down, Paul, calm down. We'll get it all under control. It's a misunderstanding, surely. Uh, you go on back to school. By the time you get there, those guys will be gone. Well, I drove back up. Now, they were alarmed by my first visit. And so now, they had machine guns set up at the oh, no. entrance to the path with sandbags around it and soldiers in there. And as I thought, well, I'm just going to bluff my way through. <laughs> so I just walked through, ignoring them, and they said, where do you think you're going? And they were speaking Lingala. I was glad I spoke Lingala. <laughs> where do you think you're going? And I said, I'm going in and tell that Belgian fellow to get out of here because this belongs to the American embassy. And uh, one of them pulled back the bolt on a machine gun, led a live round into the chamber, pointed it at my chest, and he said, no, you're not. And I said, you know, you're right. I'm not. I'm not going in there. And I walked back out the other way, went up to the house, tried the phone again. This time it was working. Got the ambassador. Hey, I thought you thought you had this all worked out. Now there's a machine gun nuts down there, and they're threatening me if I go in there. And I said, calm down. We'll take care of it. And sure enough, later on, the guys got the word, and they got out of there. But then that, oh. that told me I couldn't delay any longer. We had to start the elementary school now. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, one of the guys was really wise that, that worked for us. He was a builder. He knew much more about building than I'll ever know. But uh, he went to a, uh, a, an industrial fair on the other side of Kinshasa where companies demonstrated pneumatic drills, tractors, uh, dump trucks, all these things for big projects, and uh, including machines that could uh, cut down trees and haul them off and that kind of thing. And he got a bright idea. He came and asked my permission. He said, what if I went down there and offered to let them demonstrate their equipment on our forest. <laughs> that's really smart. Well, I thought it was. I, I thought, I don't think that's going to work, but go to it. You, you, have yeah. my, you have my blessing. If you can do it, that'll be great. Well, it worked. Wow. And so they sent out all these big, heavy equipment, and they did in, in about three days what would have taken us weeks to do as far as clearing the forest. And it gave us a running head start for building the elementary school. <laughs> that was really smart. <laughs> we have so many, when we get started on Africa, we just keep going. This was kind of going to more overarching, kind of looking at all of the past, not necessarily something super current, because once you came back, did you end up doing anything else? Well, oh. when we came back in 72, um, uh, Paula went to Patrick Henry, and that's where she met Sam, Lois, okay. her husband. Um, and Paul... Uh, we didn't know where we were going to go when we came back, and, and he figured, oh, back to the part where, why, another reason why we thought we would need to come back is because uh, Paul had, um, had been teaching and, and all in the school system in California, 
and at a certain point um, he thought in order to get able to get a job at a certain age or a certain place he needed to come back before too long had gone by and so we had to decide whether um, uh, if we were going to come back we better kind of go back to get you can explain that part of it well I'd forgotten about that but that's true <laughs> uh, I got a job as a vice principal at a junior high school in El Cajon uh, in fact the Emerald fellow who hired me was from College Avenue Baptist Church. Um, after one year as vice principal, he was assigned to a brand new high school, and I was moved up to be principal of the junior high. And the personnel department contacted me and said, well, we've received about 75 applications for people that would like to take your old job as vice principal and uh, I, uh, we need to get together and settle some criteria so we can thin this down and decide who we're going to hire. So I went to see him and he said, okay, we need to, to have some things that can take out batches of these guys because we're not going to interview 75 different people. <laughs> And I said, oh, that sounds reasonable. He said, okay, I've, I've thought of several things. One, uh, we want someone relatively young uh, so that when we train him in our ways and get him to, to fit in, he doesn't then immediately retire or go someplace else. I thought, that's reasonable. Okay, I agree. Uh, number two, we don't want somebody who started out in the public schools and then left for the private sector <laughs> and didn't get along or whatever, and so he's come back. Uh, and you have to wonder about the, his real ability. Uh, and I said, well, okay. And he went down the list, and he had about four or five of these different criteria. And all at once, at the end, I realized every single one of them would have excluded me from being my own assistant principal. <laughs> you know, because I had, uh, I was getting older. I was uh, I had left the public schools and come back, although I had already had a year then as vice principal. Uh, every one of them uh, would have excluded me, and I thought, man, if I'm hired, that's God's hand has to be in it. <laughs> when we did, um, after we decided to come back, and then we went up to, um, uh, we visited his folks who lived here in town in San Diego, and then we decided to go up and visit my parents that lived up in the Bay Area. And um, so, uh, but when we first got here and he went in for that interview, but nothing was decided. So uh, meanwhile, they said, well, we'll contact you. So we went up to the Bay Area and uh, was there for uh, a month or so. Anyway, while we were there, he got a call from uh, the El Cajon people, the people here, school system, and um, asked him, said, oh, they, they said the, the supervisor, the main guy, was not here when they interviewed him, and he wants to hear about Paul. So um, could he, Paul, fly down here and get the other interview? So they flew him down here, and he got this other interview with the school, and then uh, he flew back, and then a few days later they called and said, that uh, the guy here was so impressed with him that he wanted to hire him to come down and, and uh, that's how we got the job down in San Diego instead of any place yeah. else. And we figured that was God's leading because we didn't know. And, yeah. you know, and then we found the house and 
everything fell into place, and we thought God had, knew what he was, why we came back. So is that kind of the last job that you had then as vice principal at this place, or did you guys move around anymore? No, no I, didn't move, I didn't move around anymore, but I went from vice principal to principal. Oh. And then another school there, and then he was up at Crest. Uh-huh. So kind of a couple different schools. School. But. Or different schools, but all in the same district. Uh-huh. And then did you end up going back to nursing at this point, or did you yeah. just kind of stay at home? Yeah, I um, started looking at hospital nursing, and I worked at Grossmont Hospital, uh-huh. uh, and I worked there for 24 years. Wow. Until I as retired. As a nurse? Two years ago. As yeah. a nurse. I worked in um, uh, the... Uh, Obstetrics. I worked in uh, with the nursery and some preemie babies, and then I decided to go back to doing uh, uh, labor and delivery with babies, uh, OBs, which I had done in Ventura Hospital, and I did that then for all those years. I worked in the obstetrics. You know, I bet that'd be mothers a f- and babies yeah, and all be, of that. That'd be a fun department. I bet with and all the little. I was there for all the deliveries of my grandchildren. I was there uh, when uh, for Brandon's birth. And um, Danny and um, uh, Laura and Rachel, when they were bo- they were born at Grossmont Hospital, <laughs> and I was still working there. And so, did you get to help with the labor yeah. and delivery part? Actually, I couldn't be their nurse in charge of them okay. because I was family. Yeah. But I was there, you okay. know, and I was there at the at the delivery. Can I swing by and say hi? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Give them a little bath and, yeah. and stuff. That's, you get extra grandma time at that point. Because yeah. <laughs> the nurses that worked there were my colleagues. I'd yeah. worked there for so long. So it's, yeah, you can come help with the yeah. grandma duties. <laughs> the, the older older she got, the more of those 12-hour days began to tell. I could. Yeah. Well, three days a week is only part-time. Yeah, but still 12 hours for a shift. I yeah, bet right. for anybody, that'd be taxing. Yeah. Yeah. So then, kind of just looking back in general with your overall stories, is there any major turning points that you can kind of see just personally within, like, kind of change things? I mean, I'm guessing going to Congo is probably obviously a pretty big one, but if there's any other. Well, going back even farther than that, uh, when I was nine years old and the war was raging in Europe, three sailors came to my father's, to my father at our house. We, we were living in an apartment building and they were they knew they were being shipped over to Europe into a combat zone and they were really concerned and they wanted to do whatever was necessary to get right with God before going and so they came to see my father and I was really curious and so I crouched in the hallway outside the room and listened carefully <laughs> as my father led each of them to the Lord wow. and they prayed to receive Christ and then he arranged to baptize them in our church uh, that next yeah. Sunday before they still had time before they shipped out but as soon as they left I went in and asked my father to do the same thing with me Wow. I wanted to accept Christ. Uh, I believed in God, I, yeah. uh, all of that, but I had never really made a firm commitment. Yeah. I wanted to do that after hearing him lead them. And so he did, and then I was baptized also at the, uh, when, when With the, the sailors. sailors were. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was a turning point yeah. uh, in a very real way. Mine, I became 
a Christian. I was 12 years old, and um, we had gone up to Mount Hermon. Uh, a lot of people know Bible camp. Mount Hermon Bible Camp for youth. Um, oh, you know, and so um, kind of like a Pine Valley yeah, forest home type. Of, okay, you know, and um, or Hume Lake okay. and stuff like that. So I became uh, I accepted the Lord there. And I was they speak loudly enough for the mic. Yeah, but. Uh, that was just kind of for the record when I did become a Christian you know, yeah. and then grew from there. Yeah. yeah. When I was in college, in those days we didn't have real dormitories at Westmont. They were, it was right after the war and they were just getting relocated from Los Angeles area. And we lived in a Quonset hut and there were six of us guys in there. One of them, had begun preaching in a little coastal town hmm. uh, where there was no church. And some of the other guys started going to help and he asked me if I would come and teach uh, a, a Sunday school class of kids in about the third and fourth grade. Uh, we didn't even have a classroom. I, I met them in a van outside the building and that was our Sunday school class. So I started teaching then when I was uh, just about 18 and that made a difference in me just being having to study and having to teach and having responsibility for that and I have taught with very few years exception from the time I was 18 until I was 80 Wow uh, teaching Bible class in one form or another yeah when we came here, I was uh, to and joined the church at uh, uh, College Avenue. I started out, they, they asked me to teach a young marriage class. And I taught that until we were so old, they started another young marriage class for <laughs> really young. And then another one under that. Oh, so you just continued with that couples? the names. Off yeah. and on teaching. Yeah, yeah. We've, been, we've joined the church in 1980. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. It's one of those young married classes yeah. where my parents were in one of those, so it's really? kind of funny. Yeah, oh, and so I they. I remembered that. One of it may have been. Well, a different one. It yeah. may have been a different one. I'm not sure, but yeah. it's yeah. kind of fun because me and one of my were very good friends. Both her parents and my parents were together in that class. Yeah. They yeah. kept in contact, and then we ended up going to school together, yeah. and so it was kind of fun. Yeah. Well, I, I, I taught Paula and Sam and taught the blacks that are now with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, uh, I've, always, I've always felt Wycliffe was something special, but in the last class I taught uh, before going to Africa, there was an excellent student, a Christian kid named Bobby, Bobby Creason. Creason. And then when just a few, about eight years ago, I learned that there was a new president at Wycliffe Bible Translators, and his name was Robert Creason. And I was going to send a gift in anyway, so I sent it in, but I put a note in it. Could this Robert Creason, by any chance, be the Bobby Creason that I knew as a sixth grade student in Mound School in Ventura in 1966? <laughs> Uh, he wrote back and said, yeah, that's me, all right. <laughs> and he, he sent me a, a newspaper letter that showed our picture as new missionaries being sent out. 
and uh, put me in touch with his parents. His, his mother, his, his mother dad had died by then. Very much. They sent me an email. <laughs> and, so. and then you guys have also seen a lot of history throughout the time from being born in the Great Depression in you know, World War II to the Korean War and kind of some of that different stuff. So if you had to pick one that really just changed things, whether that's even as recent as 9-11 or if it's way back at the beginning, if you had to just pick one world event that really stood out, what would you guys pick? I think, I think the Korean War um, uh, was, was the most uh, interesting so far because of the, the uh, guys, that, the soldiers. And just your interaction with them. And your interaction. I dated a couple of them, you know. And um, uh, my, I have a, a, I had a cousin, a first cousin that lived in Texas, and he, but he was about three years older than I was, and so he was in the Marines, and he went to Korea, and um, uh, he was in where they they drive the um, tanks in that group, and so. While he was there, he died because um, he was in the tank and he lifted the lid up and stood up to see something because he was in charge. And while he was up, his head was sure. hit uh, up from the tank and he got killed. So that was uh, an event during that war that uh, affected me. Yeah. I would have to say I think the Second World War was uh, of greater consequence in my life. Uh -huh. It was everywhere. You couldn't get away from it. Every empty lot in the city was fenced off and used as a collection point for aluminum tin cans. We used to scrape, get the chewing gum and scrape the foil off and make a little ball. And when the ball got to softball size, we'd go and throw it over the fence. <laughs> we were making airplanes out of them. And uh, a lot of life was shaped by that to a large degree. That was on the East Coast, yeah. and a submarine, a German submarine, made it into one of our harbors and was captured. So people were always on edge, and they knew we could be attacked at any time. Uh, plus, the movies were filled with it. The radio was filled with yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that was a big, a big event in our lives. Yeah. And just like those three sailors that my father led to the Lord, we. We had lots of contact, too, with military people coming and going. And lots of families had a little flag in their front window with a gold star, meaning they had a child that was killed in the war. A silver star meant they're serving. A gold star meant they're killed. Yeah. That makes sense. We went to the Reagan Library a couple weeks ago, and they had, like, a gold star tree or something like that, so that makes sense now. Yeah. yeah. You could only drive 35 miles an hour during the yes. war to save gas. <laughs> yes. That's why we couldn't come back to California yeah. until after the war. So then if you could go back to any age, what age would it be and why? Oh, uh, I don't really want to go back to any okay. age. I'm looking forward to the next life. <laughs> you know what? That's... <laughs> yeah. Did you have like a... I don't... I don't quite want to phrase it as glory days, but like a period that was just really good and I don't know if that's any easier question to answer, yeah. but. I thoroughly enjoyed my years as principal at Crest Elementary School. And that's uh, back here, right? Right here. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's the last place I worked before I retired. Oh, okay. 
I would probably not have retired if they had left me there, although there were some things that I felt were immoral and shouldn't be going on in the school district. I wasn't sure I wanted to continue to be a part of it anymore. Yeah. But uh, it was a very small school in a small town. There was a the, the community felt ownership of the school. It was their school. Uh, parents were very responsive when we had a need. And uh, I just had a lot of fun with the kids. Uh, I, f I noticed that kids that had a responsibility performed better, thought more about themselves, and uh, grew a lot from having responsibility. Because it was such a small school, I did things that normally a teacher would do, but I, there weren't, weren't enough teachers to give all the jobs to. So I took the responsibility for supervising and training the, uh, the um, safety patrols and took some pride in building pride in them. And is the safety patrols like a kid job, a volunteer job, like a teacher? No, uh -huh. kid job. Okay. So we had a captain who was in charge. I taught them how to march in a military style because uh, at Christmas time, the highway patrol would sponsor a big event for them and one year we would go to the marine base and have lunch with the marines and watch them go through the obstacle courses and the training. The next year we would go to the uh, air base out here, Miramar, uh, Top Gun School, uh, get to sit in the cockpit of an airplane and all of that and, and uh, have lunch with the pilots and then there would be a, an entertainment on, on the stage, it was a big deal. Well, all these buses would pull up from the county and disgorge kids who would immediately scatter everywhere, just running helter-skelter, and their, their poor leaders were having a very hard time getting them to get together and sit and all that. At any rate, I decided we were not going to, to go like that, so I taught them to march. <laughs> and uh, when we would arrive and the bus would stop, Everybody remained seated until the captain got off, went down, would stand outside, and then he would say, fall in, and all of them would file out, get in ranks, then he would say, uh, company, lift pace. Column of files from the right, forward, march. And they would march into the building where we were going. And all the military guys, their eyes got big and their mouths came open. Here's these little kids acting like trained military. And they complimented us on that. In fact, two years in a row, uh, they elected my captain to be colonel for the state of, of California, which meant that they and uh, their teacher and the principal were all flown to Sacramento. We had lunch with the commandant of the thing. We got to visit the classes where they're trained. Then they took us out on the firing range. We got to see the guns that they were trained with. I wanted to shoot him, but I wasn't allowed to. Uh, but then we also were taken on the train, uh, uh, the place where they teach them to drive at high speeds in, in pursuits. They start out on a polished uh, cement, very smooth cement uh, field with sprinkler heads to make it as slick as possible. And when they can control their car even in a spin, then they get to go on the actual uh, speed route which is a big oval track 
with various kinds of intersections and changes. Sometimes the road is banked to help you curve, sometimes it's banked against you, and you uh -huh. have to be able to go by it. And so they put me in one car, <laughs> strapped me all in with harnesses yeah. like, uh, like in an airplane, and the kids got to ride in another, another car, and for a half an hour we went around that field. Did you get a drive? Oh no! Okay. Oh no! I wouldn't <laughs> want to drive. They they had instructors driving uh -huh. us. The tires on those cars never stopped smoking. Wow! They were burning rubber the whole time they're going. I looked over one time; it was 130 miles an hour. And one time he said, "Okay, we're going to make a right-hand turn at this next intersection," and we we were approaching it, and he wasn't slowing down. I thought, surely he's changed his mind. And then all of a sudden, he yanked it around, turned the car sideways, and just slide sideways for about 40 or 50 feet, and then into the turn. <sighs> oh my God! <laughs> I will never try to outrun a highway patrol. <laughs> but they, that was really a big deal for the kids. But they took pride in what they were doing. There was competition to get to be the guy to, got to get out of class early and go and, and, and do the patrol and all of that. And so that gave me an idea. I thought, wow, if being selected is special, if it makes them more mature, if it makes them really feel responsible, we need more jobs. So at that time, we only had about eight or 10 uh, computers in the school, Apple computers. So I formed a group and trained them to um, keep the computers clean to make sure the floppy disks that we had in those days were all filed correctly that, and maintain a, a schedule so we knew that if the teacher in room 28 needed uh, four computers at three o'clock on a certain day well, they would be there and the kids would be able to get out of class go pick the stuff up deliver it get back to class uh, but they couldn't fool around, couldn't talk to anybody in the meantime. And then when the teacher was finished with it, they would go get them, organize them, clean them, put them away. We called that the Apple Corps <laughs> because they were all Apple computers. Yeah. And that worked so well. Kids were competing for that job. So I developed a plan to have a job for every kid in the school that they could feel proud about yeah. and be in charge of. And, and it really caught on very well. I had kids that were artists that would do artwork on our big bulletin board, put up public announcements, and they would they would do the printing and the writing and all of that. Um, I had other kids. Uh, one time, our custodian was sick, and I had to send him home, but we needed to clean up the lunch area. So I went into a fourth grade room and asked the teacher, can you give me four students who usually get their work all done and they, they can afford to be out of the room for a little while. And she named four. And one of them was a little Mexican boy. And they all came out of the room just beaming. And the little Mexican boy was skipping and jumping all the way down to the lunch area. A job, a job. I always wanted a job. <laughs> and they went out and cleaned the area up. Uh, others I taught to use the video camera and they would record special events and uh, things like that, assemblies. I gave my 35 millimeter single lens reflex camera to some and taught them how to take pictures of certain things. But 
That's really cool. By the time I retired, I had two-thirds of the kids had jobs, but I never did quite get to 100%. I bet it'd be somewhat difficult coming up with jobs for that many kids. No, uh, being a small school. Oh, it was a smaller school. It was okay. a very small school. We, we only had about 400 kids or okay. something like that. Yeah, I trained a group, too, to be ambassadors. Uh, when a new student came and his parents were registering him, instead of having him sit there for 40 minutes in the office, feeling anxious and worried and bored. Uh, instead, uh, as soon as I determined which room that child was going to be assigned to, I would call for an ambassador from that room. They had already been trained. They would come, introduce themselves to that kid, take him out, show him the playground, give him the basic rules, show him where the restrooms are, show him where he goes for lunch, show him the library, um, and generally make him feel at home. And then take, or, or first of all, the first visit was going to be to the room where he was going to go to let the teacher know, uh, this is Johnny Jones and he's going to be here in your class. So you've got a half an hour at least to make sure you have a desk and textbooks and materials so that she can not just stop what she was doing, but give her a heads up so that she could be ready for that kid when he got there. So the kid felt better, the teacher felt better, the parent felt better, and uh, the kids that were ambassadors felt really important. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, uh, you know, used to talk about um, uh, giving um, kids that do well uh, extra attention and calling their parents and, and say that uh, oh, so-and-so yeah. did real well and, and uh, so forth. He had a story like that. About that kind of yeah. funny, but, uh, if I can pick up on what she's referring to, that's, that's, and then uh, that was fun too, because you asked about the time in our life that, that was special. Um, I was concerned because of the discipline in some of the classrooms seemed so, so unfriendly. Um, teachers were geared to catch kids being naughty uh, or doing something wrong, and yet I'd see kids going out of their way to be helpful, and they'd be ignored. And so I made a, a real deal of that with the teachers. Catch them being good. Look for the good behavior, and you'll find more of it. You know, there's an old saying, when you're hunting bears, every shadow and every stump looks like a bear. So if, if that's what you're looking for, that's what you're going to find. But these kids need to be recognized for the good job they're doing, not just punished. So I said... I don't want you to send any child to me to be disciplined unless you have already sent one child to me to be praised. Catch them doing something really good and send them to me uh, on Monday at a certain time and I will praise them uh, and then that's what we did. I guess that eliminates some of the fear of the principal as just the disciplinary head when he's also kind of, when yeah, you're also that, the one that's, that's a byproduct. Yeah. It wasn't my main goal. Well, my main goal was the atmosphere in the classroom. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, they began sending me kids. Uh, they had to send a note with them to tell me what it was that they had improved on or done especially well or something. And so I would get a, a bunch of them, uh, half a dozen of them at a time, so that I was praising them in front of other kids. Then, when I had really commended them, why well, this is a really important thing, then you've made improvement on this, and that's going to 
stand you in good stead, and I'm so proud of you. In fact, I think your, your, your dad really ought to know about this. So I pick up the phone and call him. Uh, if it was somebody I could reach, uh, because there were work allowed and yeah. they were at home, I would tell him right there, uh, Johnny's in my office uh, to be praised because he's done such a great job. And I'd ask the kids ahead of time, what's your very favorite thing for supper? You know, And then I'd say, well, you know, he really likes going to Taco Bell. Uh, why don't you tonight take them all out to Taco Bell and, and celebrate their, his good success at school today? He's, he's really been good. At one time, I called a guy up and said, well, Johnny's here with me. Uh, or I had Johnny in my office today because you know, he, he was one where I couldn't get him until uh -huh. evening. I called him in the evening. Johnny's uh, been in my, in my office today. And before I could say for appraising, he, he turned from the phone and said, Johnny, get your butt in here. What have you done now? I said, no, no, you don't understand. He did great. He did good. You should be proud of him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> did you find more parents kind of reacted like that? Or they more, how did the parents respond to that type? They began to catch on uh -huh. after a while. And I've met people 10, 12 years after I retired come up and tell me how important that was to them. Yeah. You know, in fact, I went to the hospital to have a, a test done. Uh, doesn't matter what it was. Yeah. At any rate, the techni technician turned out to be one of my old students. Uh, I didn't oh, recognize this, Just this year. Yeah. Yeah, this year, so 40 years later. Uh, I didn't recognize him at first, but he, he told me his name. And I said, boy, that's familiar. And finally I realized, oh yeah. And I said, uh, you were one of my safety patrols. He said, yes, I was. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for choosing me. I was so glad when wow. you chose me. And then, and then he said, I also worked on the Apple Corps. <laughs> for a half an hour, we just talked about the great times we had together at, wow. at Crest School. And that still makes an impact on him, even yeah. all this time later. Yeah, here's a guy, he must be pushing 50, and he's telling me what a great time he had in elementary school. Wow. Well, oh, and one wrote to me a letter. Uh, one of the special things for our safety patrols was they got to go to SeaWorld. But one parent, one family could not arrange to take their child to SeaWorld. So I arranged to go up to school, pick him up in my pickup truck, and drive him to SeaWorld. Well, what are you going to talk to a six or eight kid about all the time? So uh, I was working on some Bible verses that I was memorizing with little cards. And I took him out of the ashtray and handed them to him and said, well, check me out and see how I'm doing. And uh, I'll, I'll recite, you give me the verse, tell me what, what the scripture is, and I'll recite it, and you tell me if, if I get it right. And we did that all the way to SeaWorld. Well, this past year, I got an email from him. He said, uh, well, he said a whole lot of things that would be interesting, but he's now a professor of mathematics and he said uh, it really made a change in his life. He began to take the Bible more seriously, that he'd gotten into a lot of trouble in junior high, but remembering that about the Bible verses, he said he started trying to learn some Bible verses and that made a big difference in his life. And I was so amazed. Wow, that's really cool. Years and years later. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of, would you say that that's one of your greatest joys was kind of that time and kind of with 
Well, really I, back on good times, uh, yeah. And he was uh, a good principal. That, that, it that, sounds like it. <laughs> I'd have him as a principal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I would say that was one of the times I enjoyed my work the most. Yeah. And so then, obviously, it seems like you guys really have followed kind of where God's led in different parts of your life. But would you say you have any big regrets just in general over your course of your life? Can, can I just say something about yes. a special thing? Yes. Is um, having my grandchildren here and helping raise the grandchildren and taking care of them and um, uh, taking them to school. And when, when they were, I used to take Brandon and Ryan and them down to Christian Elementary yeah. and through, uh, through high school. And I'd pick them up when they didn't have, before they had cars and things, you know, when they were younger. And uh, just being able to visit with them in the car, you know. That car time when you get picked up is key time just to hear about yeah, their day and bond. Yeah, and most of them would, would uh, talk. And then sometimes when I was down there in Elka home picking them up and, and from junior high or high school, I would go to that um, pizza, the leaning pizza, not pizza, yogurt. Oh, yeah, yogurt mill? Yeah, yeah, that one. And after school, I'd pick them up and I'd say, we'll go down there and then I'd get the you know, yogurt and then take them back out to Lakeside to their place and stuff like that. And um, one time, um, David uh, and his job was working in England, in London, and uh, for he was there for four, three or four weeks. And when he finished his part of the work, then um, Chris went to join him so they could sightsee. But she had the three boys, and um, uh, Ryan was um, still in preschool. And uh, so the only opportunity would be if someone would take the boys and take them to school and everything. So she left and went with David, and I stayed down there with them at their house. And then in the mornings, I'd take them to school, each one to where their grade was. Yeah. And then I would come back up here and have coffee and breakfast with Paul, you know. But different things and taking them and playing at the house and talking with them and going to their graduations and their band yeah. concerts and stuff. Uh, I really feel like I really know those kids and as they've grown up and, and then uh, college and then married. So, They've been very special in our yeah. life. And so your regret uh, is... Well, she said she was going back. I just... She memories. Was, oh, oh, yeah. Well, I, well, special I thought you were memories. Gonna, yeah, <laughs> okay. That's, that's yeah. special memories. But I know sometimes you you express sympathy for our parents when we took their grandkids oh. and ran to the yeah. other side of the world. I was... Felt, yeah, I felt... <laughs> I felt guilty. I even almost now still feel guilty because um, I took... They, my kids, three kids, were their only grandchildren. My sister didn't have any. And then we went off to Africa with them. And I thought, oh, my, my dad built a, a house in the back of the yard in Ventura, a playhouse for the kids and different things. but. Yeah, that's something else. <laughs> when, when he was about 97 years old, wow, uh, I had tried for years to convince him, move down here with us and live with us, but he kept uh, insisting not. Then one time he came for Christmas and caught the flu, and uh, I think that helped him to decide, okay, he's ready. Yeah, he so he lived with us then for seven years until, until he was 102. Wow. Uh, yeah. Here yeah. and went to church with 
It's kind of interesting here you say that just because both of my grandparents live in other places of the country, so that's yeah. kind of cool how you do get to be there for all that stuff. Yeah, yes. yeah I've always uh, really yes. felt blessed. Yeah. God has been so good to us. Uh, and this is the last question, but do you guys have any just general advice for someone earlier on, whether that's kind of like my age group or just a little bit older? And you guys have a lot of experience at this point, so is there any just advice for? Only financially, I think it's very important to start as early as possible uh, saving money to build up a, a reserve uh, to be able to do some investing. Uh, but giving, uh, you really feel strongly about um, uh, giving oh, God. Um, that's true. Giving to financially to some of our money to missions. That's one okay. thing I emphasized with the children even when they were very little. I didn't give them just an allowance. But Did you do the three envelopes? Pardon? Did you do the three envelopes? No. Uh, oh, that was what we did no, for. So my parents, they gave us a $3 allowance when we were growing up, and it was three different envelopes that we had. And eventually it kind of became different wallets or something like that, but essentially three different containers. And every week when we got our $3, $1 would go to give, $1 would go to save, and $1 would go to spend. That's and so we'd give, spend $1 of it, but then we gave a third and we saved a third. And oh, so kind of yeah. getting in, I, that's why I thought you were so, going with that. No, not quite, but all, it's, it's the same basic yeah. idea. But uh, <clears throat> I, I didn't think giving somebody a dollar bill and say, put that in the offering plate in church today was really teaching them to give. Yeah. I mean, they just became the, the transmitter. Yeah. That's all. So I wanted them to have, I wanted that to be their money. Yeah. And I wanted that to be their decision. So early on, I, I would tell them, those that share in the family's work, share in the family's wealth. So I would tie uh, giving them money uh, to their taking responsibility for cleaning up after dinner, uh, sweeping, cleaning their room, doing whatever was necessary. David's job for a while was going out and gathering the eggs and bringing them in from the chickens we were raising. Um, that kind of thing, but then uh, I always gave them money in similar units and gave it to gave it to them in, in tens to make it very easy to see what a tithe would be, the tenth. So if we went from ten pennies to ten nickels to ten <laughs> dimes to ten quarters. You had to stock up on your change beforehand so you oh, had yeah. enough. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that was not a problem. That's but a idea. that was that was what was to go to God. And uh, I've, I've continued to emphasize that for a long time. Now, two, two Christmases ago, I sent $10 to each of our great-grandchildren, and one of them wrote back and said, thank you so much for the $10, and I know you want us to tithe, so I put $5 in the church. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better have a little lesson on fractions. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> Okay. Is there any other stories that you want to get out? Or otherwise, I think we're probably booked. I think we covered a lot of ground. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I had no clue about some of this stuff, and so it was really interesting Thank hearing you. about Africa and stuff. Oh, you're very patient. <laughs> oh, it was really interesting. Anyway, so that's it for this week. Uh, thank you for Mr. and Mrs. Pretty for letting me talk to them. And until then, you can feel free to subscribe in your podcast player. Uh, you can follow on Instagram at seniority.fm. 
or you can rate and leave a review on iTunes. And that's all I got for this week. See you in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.